Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Crowdlinker Fireside Chat. I'm Aram Mukumuf, the host. Thanks for tuning in. On the show, as you know, I'm interviewing product and innovation leaders uh, who are working on big industry disruptive problems from within their large organizations. The guests that I have on the show have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share about building quality digital products, staying agile, and fostering an innovation mindset. Today, I'm joined here by Dustin Kirkland to discuss managing products at startups versus enterprises, as well as the importance of user personas and critical user journeys and how to approach reorgs at a fast growing company. Just a quick, uh, quick bio on Dustin. He's the current chief product officer at Apex, which is a digital wealth management solution that is set to IPO and is valued at nearly $5 billion. At his current role, He's responsible for the product and strategy at, at of Apex FinTech Solutions. And previously, Dustin has held engineering and product roles at IBM, Can, Canonical, Canical, I always get that wrong, wrong Gazong, and Google. Uh, so without further ado, awesome to have you on our show today, Dustin. Thanks for, uh, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to it. How do I say that name correctly? Can Canonical. Can Canonical. Canonical for for uh, four <laughs> syllables. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Uh, I think uh, we always regret it to, to some extent. The the name it's got such a great uh, meeting, but people trip it over does. it all the time. Yeah, uh, I see that. I tripped over it as well. All right. Uh, first question I have um, for you, Dustin, is if you could just maybe give I, I give a bit of a bio there, but we'll have it to come from your own perspective. A bit hmm. of a bio about you, um, what what you actually do. Um, <laughs> at Apex as well, and uh, also where you're based. Yeah, so I'm based in Austin, Texas. I've lived here um, 21 years. Love it. Just a, such a great outdoorsy space. Um, you know, you can really appreciate the the food and the culture and the music. And um, yeah, a booming tech scene for sure. Um, I uh, I'm an engineer at heart. Uh, you know, that's what my degree is in, uh, if I'm messing around with technology outside of work, uh, you know, I still do a little bit of open source uh, coding. Um, someone asked me at a dinner party, what do you do for a living? I usually say I'm an engineer and I, I don't know. I mean, I could say product, I could say I'm an executive, I like, but I'm an engineer at heart. So it really starts, starts there for sure. Um, but I really enjoy applying uh, engineering and technology to business problems. And that's the part where at some point in my career, about 10 years ago, I switched over from uh, being a pure developer or manager of, of, uh, of developers and started focusing mm -hmm. on the business side of, uh, of technology. And um, why, why was that? What, what led you to persuade that, you know, tangent in your career? It, you know, I, I, I started as a developer at IBM, um, managed a small team, was a manager and an architect, um, all on the open source side of things, uh, eight years at, at IBM, um, and then joined Canonical. So uh, we're, uh, we were the, the company behind Ubuntu Linux. Mm -hmm. um, again, as an engineer and a, and a manager, uh, I left Canonical, came back later, uh, but I left Canonical and was a CTO at a startup uh, the startup I had been a technical advisor to, uh, the startup had taken some open source code that I had authored around encrypted file systems, um, had applied it in an interesting way to to turnkey encryption of databases, especially healthcare and PII HIPAA regulated data, uh, 
And once they raised a round of funding from uh, venture capitalists, I, I joined uh, as the CTO. And I, it, was, it was definitely not an explicit product title or function, but I found myself constantly trying to, to solve the, the, the business problems around this great open source code and technology we had. How do we sell this? How do we price it? How do we mm -hmm. market it? Um, and so without really knowing it, I, I think I was operating as a product focused CTO. Um, it was when that company exited to Cloudera, it was a nice exit. There's that, you know, most of that team is still the security team behind uh, Cloudera uh, Hadoop solutions. Um, I went back and rejoined Canonical and was recruited back to Canonical by the uh, the founder and CEO to to be a product manager and to help monetize the hundreds of millions of instances of Ubuntu that were, you know, out there and, and freely deployed in the world. Um, you know, we we act, we had a business problem at Canonical, which was you know how to make make money on on Ubuntu, and so, you know, that's that's what brought me into the product side of things, and I gravitated toward it and stuck with it. Uh, you know, was a product manager at Google for a while, uh, and you know, lead a product team at at, uh, at Apex now. Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for that background. Um, question on that. You know, you have that vast experience between startups and enterprises. You know, enterprise. IBM and Google and uh, startups, can Canonical and, and Gazong. What was, what are the key things that come to mind about the difference in the work um, experience between those mammoths to some of the startups? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I've spent almost exactly half of my career in the, the sort of the big company, the IBMs and Googles, and half of my career in the growth mode startups both of which have their appeal you know there are fun things about each of each of the uh, the different organizations you know obviously the resources that google can bring to bear or ibm can bring to a problem um is pretty remarkable um but it can be a bit like you know trying to, to man and steer an aircraft carrier it's just it's not always as nimble and efficient as you know startup world so that's one of the big the biggest differences is how uh, quickly decisions or investments can be made in the startup world, how many people you have to build a consensus with or um, get approval from, you know, especially as a product manager, super important, very different in the, the big company versus small company mindset. Mm -hmm. um, I think increasingly big companies have come to realize that, you know, very much to 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 the, you know, the enterprise, the mammoths, like you said, they're, they're the credit. Um, some are taking really deliberate steps to empower smaller teams, especially product managers, to operate with some degree of autonomy, some degree of critical decision making that is scoped into the responsibility well, uh, that helps breed a little bit of that startup style efficiency inside of, you know, a, a, a world brand name company with 100,000 employees, you know. And what... Um... What are those things that they're changing? What is that methodology, that approach, the tactics, activities, or whatever that these larger companies are now trying to uh, adopt in order to give those product managers autonomy or you know line of sight to a PL or whatever it is? Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. It, it's you mentioned it even in in your intro. It sort of starts with or harkens back to agile, but that's very much on the engineering side of things. You know, agile methodologies two-week sprints, sprint demos at the end of it, you know, restart the cycle, do it over and over again. Um, on the product side of things, 
Um, Agile is a piece of it for for sure, you know. Um, but there's another set of methodologies that, you know, I, I've I've used and adapted, and um, I'm an, a technical advisor to a couple of startups, and I've helped them implement as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it really orients around a cycle, a cyclic nature. The cycle is is quite nice though, in, in that you know we go through the exact same process every time. We do three per year. Uh, 16 weeks is how long we plan out a cycle. Three times 16 is 48. Uh, mm-hmm. That allows us to discount four weeks of the year for Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, you know, the end of year holidays, and we kind of put a, a week in the summer just for summer breaks, right? Um, but three times 16 is 48. We do that over and over and over again. It starts with prioritization. We take the backlog. We product managers take the backlog, prioritize that with our stakeholders, the client-facing teams, ops, engineers, just everyone that we, you know, product managers serve. Um, we get our, our stack rank list of priorities. We then take that and work with our engineering leads and we fit uh, those stack rank, you know, the top as much as we can of those priorities. We fit that into the amount of time, 16 weeks, and the number of people that we have, you know, roughly the engineering teams. We take those two as the fixed uh, constants and then the variable in the equation is how much, the scope. We fit mm-hmm. that to the 16 week cycle and then as of the first week, we're off and running. We start executing against that. We track it, KPIs, dashboards, you know, meticulously tracked reporting, burn down charts all the way along the way. Two week sprints inside of the 16 weeks. And some things we're a software as a service, a SaaS company. So, you know, when it's ready, it goes through testing, Q&A. Uh, uh, it can be rolled out to production. It doesn't, we don't have to wait until the, la- the 16th week of the cycle, which is very different than uh, you know, I worked on Kubernetes, you ship a tarball at the end of the cycle, you know, I worked at Canonical, you ship a, an ISO, a CD at the end of the, a DVD at the end of the, the cycle. Software as a service has to be more, you know, iterative than that, yeah. and we're perfectly iterative. And then we do that, oh, and then there's a halfway point, a check-in point, a review at the midpoint of the cycle, and then we do that over and over again. And it, it's 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 nice, it runs like a train, like clockwork. You get in the habit, you do it over and over again. We've been doing it for two and a half years, seven cycles. Uh, it basically runs itself once you get to a certain amount of critical mass. And I would say, you know, as a product leader, it is, it's great to build on such a solid foundation. Mm-hmm. And so you plan out the business priorities for the, for the year, and then you break it out. Um, but how do you also level set or stress test that what you're building is still accurate or needs to be built? you know, do you, where do you incorporate like the user feedback from or the client feedback from into the iterations? Yeah, great, great question. So to your first point, we adopt themes, strategies for the whole year, but then we break that into the, those four month, those 16 week cycles. We only make detailed commitments for the 16 week cycles, right? We've got a pretty good idea of what we're going to do for the whole year. And I can talk to clients and, and share feedback and get feedback uh, from them and incorporate. The incorporation of that, uh, first of all, it's constant. Document, document, document everything, always in SharePoint or Google Drive. There should be multiple cursors clicking at all times with multiple people taking notes when you're in a roadmap review with clients. And we, you know, I, I talk to our top 20 clients three times a year and almost all of our clients at some point, I'll have a touch point over the course of, of the year. Uh, that feedback is documented and goes on to the product backlog. We try to capture capture feature requests as critical user journeys um, that get logged in our in our in our database um, 
And then that's the backlog that the product managers are prioritizing those three times per year. Um, during a cycle, we try and not disrupt the commitments we made to the 16 weeks, right? Mm -hmm. We try to lock that plan and stick to it for about three or four months. I've helped some startups adapt this, the, the, the 16 weeks. We've adapted it to 12 weeks. We've adapted it to six weeks. I haven't gone much smaller than, than six weeks, um, but you know the process can adapt as long as it, it iterates. And it really depends on the size of the scope of the team and the product and how big the thing is. For our company, our product, 16 weeks has, has felt about right. Um, yearly okay. or twice a year would be too, too slow. Um, four times a year is where you start getting into it. It's a little bit frenetic and, you know, it's nice to align with quarterly goals, but Q4 is always a mess with, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, in the year holidays. January can be tricky if you've got a, you know, an, an, uh, Chinese New Year or something. It's just, it can be tough. So we settled on three cycles per, per year. And every one of those cycles is an opportunity to recalibrate. Um, I'll say one more thing, which is, we do have a process by which exceptions are made where late, we call them late breaking, but late breaking critical items come in unexpectedly. You know, um, we have a process by which we trade out something that was committed for a new thing that preempts it. There's a lot of communication that goes on to make sure that everybody is aware of what's, um, uh, of what's happening and that there are appropriate sign-offs uh, and communication back to clients if we're gonna miss uh, a deadline. And so what, what makes that exception? Um, so, I mean, in, in our business, it's stock market, you know, it, it's some, it's, it's something like the, uh, you know, the, the, the nature of just the unpredictable nature of the, the market, you know, we provide brokerage solutions, yeah. a lot's happened over the last couple of years that we couldn't, couldn't have predicted, you know, mm, um, in, in other companies, uh, you know, especially some of the startups I, I advise, it's um it's something of a competitive nature you know your biggest client uh acquired your competitor um your i mean that's unexpected you don't know that's going to happen now you've got to adjust you know adjust your roadmap right um it's a in bigger companies it might be let's go back to m a you just acquired some new technology so now we need to adapt the roadmap uh to to match it you know and it's not always about acquisitions uh, it's it's something you know usually of a competitive nature, just something in the market that's changed that you didn't know three, four, five, six months ago. You know, mm -hmm. um, who knew crypto was going to have this like incredible uh, spike and run up, right? Who knew um, you know anything about the the, the GameStop short squeeze or um, you know Apple and Tesla split uh, their stock on the same exact day? None of that was predicted. Predictable, and, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, very interesting. No, thanks for sharing that insight. Um, I, we, we had a chance to connect about this before, and I think I, I want to spend some time on it. I want to talk about like user journeys and personas. So as a product studio, when we work with a lot of clients, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the times when products are misaligned um, and there's a, a lot of risk is because they're released without much understanding of who's going to be using them and why. Um, so I want to get your take on walking, walking us through your process of what you do around defining user personas and more importantly, the critical user journeys. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's right at the heart of what we do. I would call it the the like atomic unit that our products uh, are built upon, our PRDs are built upon. It all starts with uh, a CUJ, a critical user journey. Um, mm -hmm. The way we structure our CUJs is, is pretty simple. It's easy to remember. It's um, a CUJ is a paragraph. It's usually handwritten, nicely written uh, English, you know, a little story that answers four questions in four distinct sentences. Uh, it answers the question, who, what, when, and why. Okay, so start with the who. Uh, and that's the persona, you know, that's that's the who. Sometimes we make up names of people. Sometimes it's a real uh, person or, or representative of a group of people. Um, that person has a job function or, or uh, a life goal or something they're trying to do. You know, so Sally uh, is um, a network administrator trying to identify making this up as i go trying to identify a uh, a security intrusion in her company okay um so that's about the length of a first sentence mm -hmm. uh, we usually give the, the person a name so that later when we're talking about different personas we're talking about sally when we're talking about the you know the security network admin right um and we'll have whiteboards full of you know what sally's trying to do and we'll talk to sally and, and talk about sally as if she's a real person because that's what she represents right uh, but just as easily sally could be a non-technical person so, you know susan's a, a, a an an investor trying to you know buy options for the first time or, or something like that right but that's the the, the who okay mm -hmm. um what i kind of went into what right there for susan what is you know what what is that user trying to do and i just said you know susan's trying to buy options you know the who is you know, she's a first time investor has never done this before what she's trying to do. Uh, you know, she's, you know, Sally is trying to identify a, a network security problem. Uh, Susan's trying to invest in a, this derivative um, investment vehicle, right? Um, and we'll get we'll get pretty clear about the, the, the what's right. Um, when is an interesting one, it's about the conditions that bring that person to this to this moment. Um, and it might be because uh, you know, Susan just fell into a whole bunch of money and now she's trying to protect her portfolio against a downturn, right? So she wants to buy some protective options. Uh, when is, uh, is Sally trying to solve this network problem? Well, it's in the middle of the night and she's actually on vacation, uh, right? So now we're gonna design a product that helps solve, solve her problem, right? Uh, now, why is the third piece, and this is, You'll hear a lot of emphasis if you study the the, the materials on product management. We're definitely the kids uh, that asked why a whole lot. So if you've got kids and they ask you why a whole lot, maybe there's a career in product management for them somewhere along the way. Uh, but why helps us get to the heart of you know um, of of the solution that we're going to build. Note that how is not part of any any of this, and that's super important how we leave to the engineers and i say that as an engineer as well like in a previous life don't tell me how i'll i'll figure out the how just tell me what you want me to build you know who am i building it for uh, why am i building it and give me some of the conditionals that I, I i will build it for um and then when we're building a product that 
that CUJ might explode into dozens of combinations. It might be one person who wants to do a whole bunch of different things. And so we'll have a column where we'll draw, you know, a matrix of that one person wants to do this and this and this and this. And then there's another column which might have more lines, which is all the whys, all the conditions that might put them into the, you know, the when, when they're going to do this. And the why might be for very different reasons for that, for that same person or, or different people. Um, but the, that combination then gives us a really rich set of CUJs that define a product. And when given to us an engineer and a set of engineers and engineering team, with that, they know it, they can really hone in on, on how they're going to solve this problem and what they're going to build. And then finally, the, 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 the person that gets a whole lot of use out of this is the Q&A team, the quality assurance and testing team, because as they start writing their functional tests, they're going to write tests that look like, you know, Sally and Susan in these two examples. Interesting. And so, I mean, thank you so much for explaining that. I think it's, it's a gem in terms of that process. Um, how do you always go and stress test uh, against this when you, when you actually have the product or you have features that are coming up? Do you constantly think about, Hey, what is Sally going to think of this feature? How would she use it? Um, and how do you go through that kind of decision process to see what, what it is that you do end up building? Are you constantly looking at those CUJs and your personas and like really kind of identifying with everything that you do, like at the beginning of a sprint or when, you know, you're grooming something, how, how does that work? Yeah, I would, I'd say that we try to start small and then, you know, crawl, walk, run. Uh, I know it's so proverbial at this point, but we, we try to start small. Um, it has been important to me to democratize the CUJ writing process, and that's why it's so simple. Four sentences, it can be as long as a tweet, you know, it's, it's 280 characters or, or, or less. Um, we've created two different vectors for, uh, for CUJs to be written. One is for the client-facing team, and that's usually in Salesforce or something, you know, like that, a CRM. Mm -hmm. um, that just asks those four questions, hit submit, and voila, the sales rep who is in a conversation with a prospect. We don't solve their problem today, but you know, I wish we, I wish we would. You know, you can tell me about that around the water cooler, but it doesn't count unless you write the CUJ, click submit, and it goes on our backlog. And then for the more technical folks, it's the same four questions and we use a, a JIRA or some other, you know, ticket in queue. Uh, but both of them feed into the same CUJ database. Those are just front ends that drop that into the same database and then obviously tie that back to, uh, you know, Google um, Sheets in our case where we can manage these, you know, using um, the primitives of a, a, a spreadsheet basically. Uh, it, but I said, start small. So it's just like, I was just in a meeting, a client asked us for a thing that we don't sell today, but I wish we sold it. Uh, if you want to write me a feature request, write it as a CUJ and boom, it's on the backlog and, and we'll, we'll get to it. Um, and then our product management team, we prioritize those, everything that comes in once a week in my weekly staff meeting, uh, we'll go through that list and, and make sure that everyone's aware of the new things that came in and we'll, we try to identify patterns. That's one thing that it's important to have a group of people looking at it. Hey, I've seen something like that. I was talking to another customer who said it differently, but they want, you know, the solution's gonna be the same thing. To get that magic working, you need multiple, you know, eyes on those problems and try to extract the, the signal from the, from the noise. Um, to your question about going back and measuring it, what would, what would Sally look like? 
Um, honestly, the answer to that is super elegant and simple. Uh, at some point, we get that thing in front of the real Sally, and it may not be Sally. It's the CTO or the CIO or the director of operations of you know one of our clients, or maybe it's a, a retail investor or consumer, you know, the person buying your widget. Uh, literally get it in front of them, you know, and at some point connect that hypothetical uh, to reality and ask them, you know, and if you're in a, a, a if you're in a consumer or retail B2, B2C sort of business, that's the, that's the, you know, rate your Uber driver. How many stars did you give this product? You know, how was your stay? How was your, how was your meal? Uh, walking out of the airport, what was your experience? Red, yellow, green. Get that real feedback and do that systematically. And then anecdotally, when you have an opportunity as a product manager to meet with a client or a customer, um, ask them. L literally just ask them, hey, what do you think of this feature? How, how does this set with you? What would you do different? What would you do if you had my job? That's, that's, a, that's a fun question to ask sometimes. I like that one. What would you do if you had my job? I should use that one more when I do my <laughs> own sales calls. <laughs> um, Hey, you're the you're the you're the head of product of this uh, of this product that you're using. What would you do if you were me? Um, sometimes that's disarming, and sometimes that's empowering, and it lets someone think uh, for you and and actually empower them, make them really happy to give that kind of feedback. Not you're, they're not giving feedback to a product manager. They are now hypothetically the product manager of the you know pick a product. You're uh, we drive a minivan. Uh, you're the product manager of Toyota Sienna. Uh, what, what would you do differently about this product? Boy, my wife would give you a list, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's true. Some of the best insights that we've ever gotten about the product actually came from the clients. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, right? Um, it's honest. It's unvarnished, you know? It is. It is. Um, cool. Next set of questions I wanted to go through was around organizational design. And, you know, I think you have some, some good opinions on like how to handle reorgs. So, I think in specifically uh, the investment industry, I've seen some companies uh, go through a serious boom in the last like year or two, including probably your company. Um, your team alone, from what I recall, you said grew from six people to 60 people. Um, so I want to ask, and I think it's probably going to be relevant for a lot of uh, scale-up uh, um, audience members of ours, but how do you manage... How do you deal with that type of growth um, and ensuring that, you know, you're doing a proper reorg in the process to make sure that you have the right methodology in place and the right structure to make sound decisions on? Yeah, boy, it's a, it's a tricky one that has a hundred wrong answers and almost zero, you know, right answers. Um, but I mean, I can share a couple of the things that I think have worked and maybe you know not not worked in the past. Um, the first one I would say, which no one ever you know told me in my my career, um, but you know I came to to learn over some point is organizations they reorg. It happens a lot. You know, I remember being really disrupted and nervous the first couple of times I saw a reorg at IBM. You know, as a junior employee and. Uh, executives were moving, leaving, shifting, promotions, you know, whatever it might be, um, especially to a junior employee in a, what's supposed to be a big stable company. It, it just, it happens and expect it to happen. Um, 
I've seen some companies, you know, talk about reorg season. It's a season, you know, especially around the end, end of the year, you know, you get in the fall and or at end of the fiscal year, it's reorg season. Of course, you know, there's going to be some people moving around. So I would say if you're affected by it, just sort of expect it and um, and and deal with it, work, work within the, the bounds, as opposed to, you know, not expecting it and being, you know, nervous, frustrated, whatever, anxious that, that might be. That's the first piece. The second, if you're in a position where you are, you know, part of the reorg, either participating or uh, maybe a third step we can talk about where you're sort of leading and designing a great organization. Um, I personally, I try to err on the side of communication, you know, trying to trying to talk to people, um, at least gathering opinions and writing them down, you know, sketching out notes. Um, not everyone, especially junior people in the org, are, are going to, you know, get their way or get their wishes. But at the very least, you could hear them out. Hey, what's working? What's not working? Where, where would, um, where, what would you do if you were in my position? If, if you had my job, what, what would you do? It's not going to necessarily go down like that, but you know, get, get talking and let, mm -hmm. let's hear about it. Um, I try to, I try to do a couple of laps around the organization to understand what's working, what's not working, and you know what would some people um, believe great would look like. Now, all of that just feeds into a, a bigger, a bigger uh, process, and not all of it is, you know, even as an officer in the company, it, are are you in control of? You know, there are powers that that exist outside of that. You know, um, but having what I found though is that having at least try to make people feel like they're they were part of the journey as opposed to you know just sort of handed a, a playbook and said here's here's what's new it's a difference between a, a team that i think you know feels like they're part of the process versus you know um not you know fr frankly excluded um the the next thing i would say is that the big question that i try to ask myself when thinking about a, a reorg, and that could be a matter of promoting a manager or moving people within within a team. Um, I try to make sure that that's not reactionary and instead designed. And and the key question is, what does the team need to look like in a couple of years? And you know, your your or may differ whether the right number is in a year or three years or five years or ten years or whatever. But what does it need to look like? in the future not today not just trying to solve a point problem hey i'm overloaded have too many reports or hey this person uh is got promoted i need to i need to put some you know need to put some resources uh underneath that person or something like that those are like momentary blips in in time that will pass the big question is what does success look like in two or three years time and why is this What's the right design to get us to there? Not to solve the today problem, but you know, to solve the big problem. That's the I think the most insightful, the most insightful piece. And then the second question that goes along with that is, how will I know if that worked? How will I know if if that if this structure change solved the a, a problem or set us up for success or not? In which case, you know let's get back into the design room and, and, and rethink this. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's like the biggest thing I always, you know, I'm curious about is like, once you do a reorg, how do you know if it was successful or not? How do you know if it was a big waste of time and money um, at the end of the day? And 
Yeah, for me, I haven't participated in one. I've never really um, looked in what happens. But did you go through one yourself? Yeah, a number of them. Um, I would say that most of the reorgs that I've been part of have been really about, and there's a couple of different you know types and reasons. Sometimes you're trying to turn around a, you know, a failing business or whatever. That that really hasn't been my. I have I don't have that experience. I know people mm -hmm. who do. Uh, most of the reorgs I've been a part of have been about setting a company up for scale, you know, for for massive growth, for hockey stick 10x growth. You know, we're we're six people, we're going to turn into 60. We're 100 people, we're going to turn into 1,000. Um, that's where, again, trying to, to, to figure out what does the company need to look like in a year or two or three. Um, it, it's really about designing an organization for, for scale. So, you know, there are just some human limitations of once you get to a certain number of direct reports, you just there aren't enough hours in a week to have a one-on-one -on -one with everyone. There's not enough time to approve expense reports and PTO. And you know those are like the the little ticky tack things that add up once you hit some number of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, twenty reports. Um, there's also a big difference between you know someone who's super senior, independent, self-starter give them, you know, a one liner of here's an assignment and they knock it out of the park in, you know, a, a, a fixed amount of time um, versus building an org around junior people that you're going to train, train up and train to do a good job. And they're just going to take a little more attention, uh, a little more education and attention, you know. And so to some extent, designing an, or, an organization for, for growth and scale is about installing the right leadership and pods that you know allow that sort of pod to swim together in the same direction without a single leader or executive having you know just doesn't have the the hours in a day or a week to give all the attention necessary in every direction that's that's really interesting and like i, I want to ask you because you've already done these a couple of times and participated in it but with your learnings now um if you were to build an org with your knowledge now from scratch how would you approach it? A product org specifically, or, or org. um, wow, great question. Um, and honestly, not one I've I've thought hard about, but you know, uh, applying what I I know, um, I think I would have a core set of senior top lieutenants that can be trusted with big picture strategy and execution that, that can handle both sides of that, both the strategy and, and the execution. And depending on the scope, that might be one person, it might be two, three, four, five, ten, right? Um, call those like level, we could spend hours talking about levels, but I'm thinking, you know, director group level uh, product managers who can manage other product managers, they can do it themselves. They have to be able to do it themselves, but they have to be more effective, even more effective and productive leading a team. Okay. Self-starters, uh, good with ambiguity, you know, deal with lack of information really well, um, can take a fair amount of direction instruction. Top-notch communicators can communicate up. Uh, if I'm out or not around, they can replace me and talk to the senior executives, the CEO, the board of directors, and I don't, I don't have to worry much about it. Sure, I'd like to have some oversight and, and double check the, make sure the message and the slide deck is great, but would have no, um, no reservations about, you know, hey, th this person's got what you need. Okay, 
and you need lieutenants. You absolutely need those high trust, high performance, a couple of those high performance relationships. Um, not everyone in the organization is going to have that level of expertise. You can't afford that many. You can't find that many. Um, there's also just some clashes that come up with too many super ambitious people. It, it's a weird team dynamic if there's just not yeah. enough room, right? So you need to have that next layer of up and coming. And I would say people who have the ability, you know, over the course of three, four, five years, whatever, move into that. Um, and that's the that's the deep expertise product management layer. And and those, you know, in designing a great org, each of the the, the sort of group of director level product managers, however many you might have, might then have two, three, four, five, six uh, product managers, junior, associate, uh, product, maybe even senior product managers that operate with varying degrees of scope uh, and varying degrees of autonomy, how much, you know, they need. Um, I don't see those group level product managers managing more than five or six people. Typically it, it gets, there's just so much scope typically beyond that. It's not like an engineering manager, you know, where I managed a dozen or more individual developers. Product managers bring with them a lot of matrix relationships that you kind of have to, to keep in mind. So I've found a sweet spot to be around, you know, three, four, five, six uh, of managers of product managers. Um, okay. And then what I would say is that you've got two more um, sort of auxiliary functions that, that would help here. One auxiliary function would be project slash program managers, the people that sort of grease the grease the skids or, or, or oil in the engine that make everybody more effective, right? And that's the person who's not on the strategic side of things, but they're helping with um, a bunch of the dashboarding and the tracking, um, the project management, building the project plan, more emphasis on the high priority things, less of the detailed micro minutia on, on the less important ones. Um, I usually, I'd like to see one of those project managers for every, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 or so product managers. It's good to have a, a, at a Google, we call them a TPM, a technical product manager. Um, other places, they're program managers or project managers, but they're um, an auxiliary to the whole team. And then the last auxiliary would be a group of business analysts, BAs, and depending on depending on what your product is, having some really junior, super sharp, just out of school, maybe one day themselves a product manager, uh, some BAs that just really nerd out on the data uh, and the analysis. Um, a couple of BAs can make an entire product team super uh, effective and professional. Awesome. I'm going to copy that game plan <laughs> <laughs> and uh, apply it for us and for our, 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 our client projects. Um, Last question for you, or maybe two, I don't know, we'll see. Um, I want to ask, with your knowledge and everything that you have in, in, the, in the product management space, this might be a silly question, but in the year 2030, what do you think product managers will actually be doing on a daily basis? Where will their focus be? Oh, wow. Good question. Um, so, you know, one thing I think we're going to see a massive evolution of um, just the dashboarding, the data, the analytics, the machine learning and insights, you know, that's something that at the, at the 
at the upper echelon of the Silicon Valley companies. And here I'm talking the Twitter and Netflix, uh, Google, Microsoft's of the world. Um, and I'm just scratching the surface there. There, we're talking product decisions that are totally driven by really good uh, data, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, go and look at at at, a, at at Netflix and, you know, I swear to God, like the, the, the squid game was green lit for my exact persona. I love it. It's great. Uh, it ticks every box that I have, like everything I've ever liked, you know, dystopian society, foreign film, kind of low budget, you know, thriller, eight, nine part series, like across the board, that was just tailor made by a machine learning algorithm that said, find me more stories like this green, like those, because, you know, Dustin's going to watch all of them. Right. Uh, um, and that happens. And that's, you know, a product management thing that happens all over the board at, you know, Tesla and other Apple, you know, other companies making great products. Um, I would say that the world at large and a small to medium business just doesn't have access to that kind of data and tooling and insights. Um, but I guarantee you a 300 person boutique software shop would benefit from that same data. Um, the corner brewery or cafe would benefit from that same like data and insights. And so I think there's an element of product management that is just going to be completely wrapped around, you know, data and insights that come from, sorry, insights that come from the data that product managers identify and have access to. Um, to some extent, those critical user journeys should write themselves. You know, that thing that that I described, the who, what, when, why, uh, could almost be a, you know, an AI written thing with a value ascribed to it, you know, and, and that is what happens for like a, a Netflix viewing profile or a, a Tesla's machine, you know, um, self-driving algorithm, those things are, are almost writing themselves at this point, but that hasn't scaled down to uh, anything other than the, the ultra mega cap uh, NASDAQ, you know, tech companies so far today. Great answer. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better response, to be honest. Um, no, that's that's so true. And I really be, I, I really like the idea of potentially having an AI system write out all of our user stories based on data, you know, from different APIs or access to market information. That would be so cool. Mm. One day, right? One day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this was great. Dustin, we'll wrap it up here. Um, thank you so much for coming on our show today. I really appreciate it. Lots of wisdom shared. Um, and for everybody who's going to be listening, tune in next time to hear more from other product innovation professionals sharing their insights. <laughs>